I think we are good and we're ready to go. Uh, does this thing need to be pressed? Uh, no, it's already been pressed. Oh, it's already been pressed. So we don't need to press anything except press on. We do need to press on. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award merry-go-round. Uh, we are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this episode is 17... 1929 to 1930 Oscar season roundup. We're in our second year of talkies. Second year of talkies indeed. And it was, it, it started off kind of eh, still with some of the staginess and awkwardness of the previous year, but I think it ended with quite literally a bang. Yeah, it, oh my goodness, just comparing this year to the last season Oof. was, yeah. Um, very different, very yeah, different, very different. And in a good way. I mean, it really does show how quickly like Hollywood adapted itself to sound and used it in ways that I don't think uh, the silence could have done with this material, which is which is good, because I think a lot of the movies from like the year before should have just been silence. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Definitely. I, yeah, I can't say that for any of the movies this year. You know, I think they were all very good in the sound medium. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree, definitely. Of course, we did. Uh, <laughs> there was the uh, the Patriot oh, amongst our right. nominees. Oh, I forgot what. Yeah. Was that this year or last year? Time is so crazy right now. I think I think it is supposed to be this season. Oh, my but uh, of course, that is no longer extant. I don't think. I yeah, uh, it's. Check out the trailer. The trailer the trailer's really groovy. And I think there's probably like a few like extracts. Oh, you know what? I'm a total liar. The Patriot was from last year. I thought it was. So um point for me. Put that down. Yeah. Okay, so so far Laura has a score of one. Okay. Jason has a score of zero. Donut. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. All right. So the way we go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's the end of a workday, so I'm a little punchy. I'm a little, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, but uh, there, there are old movies to dissect, so let's get into it. Yeah, what we're going to do for this roundup is what we usually do for the roundups. We're going to cover the uh, the non-nominees first, and then we're going to move on to the nominees, and we're going to talk about each of them and see why they didn't get a nominee. Why they did get a nomination? Yeah. Nomination is the correct word, not nominee. It is. Nominee is like the what person it is. nominated. Yeah, person nominated. But like you said, end of a work day. You, end of a work you guys day. Are, for sure. You guys are lucky we're still talking. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're going to like kind of just do a quick goal little summary, just recap of the movies. And yeah, like Jason said, say what we liked about them, what we didn't, what got them the Nutsker nom, and what didn't. And then, uh, I guess just each of us will scribble down the movie of our choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then you'll just find out if we agree with the uh, with the Academy. Do you have a pretty strong uh, idea yes. going into this? Yes, there were, in my mind, two main contenders, but one did edge out. How about you? I think I'm in the same boat. Yeah. And I don't think anyone who's listened to the previous episodes will be surprised either at like what those two are. <laughs> right. For sure. For sure. But uh, let's uh, 
Let's start off with our our lonely non nominated for our personal award. Another example of like how much better this year was than last year. There was like what only like one or two movies we ended up nominating last year. Meanwhile, all the movies except this one were nominated by us. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we were we were ready to like some movies. But go on. Yeah. Maybe we're a little bit generous to start off with. A little bit, but definitely not with the two I think we're thinking of. Right. They definitely definitely deserved it. Yeah. Okay. So it was actually the first one that we watched as well, I believe. Right. The first one was The Love Parade. Did we decide it was The Love Parade or is it just Love Parade? I think it's The Love Parade. Okay. So The the Love Parade to end all all Love Parades before and after. Okay, it's uh, The Love Parade is an Ernst Lubitsch musical and uh, is certainly the lightest in tone of any of these movies for this Mm -hmm. year. But it definitely has its uh, darker side, although this is not really intentional by the movie. That's more of that's more of a A a, modern lens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So let's uh, Let's get into a review of of what happens in this in this delightful little musical. Let's little musical romp. Uh, so French matinee idol Marie Chevalier plays a cheeky playboy count named Renard from the fictional country of Sylvania of Marx Brothers Duck Soup fame. And, you know, again, there is no concrete proof that there is a cinematic universe between that's shared between this movie and the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. But I think like the only evidence we need is the fact that Sylvania is in both. And Sylvania also a lot both. of the aesthetic is very similar too. Yes, a lot of the aesthetic is very similar. And I, gosh, I have to bet money that, uh, that there are sets and, and costuming oh, that they had definitely be. borrowed from mm-hmm. Love the love parade in duck soup. Yep. Well, anyways, uh, so getting back to Chevalier playing Count Renard, uh, he has spent the past several years in Paris building a reputation as a chronic ladies man. Word of his various romantic scandals gets back to the Royal court and he is ordered back to report to Queen Louise for punishment. Uh, the, the queen is played by Jeanette McDonald's and is uh, her movie debut in this role. Yep, went on to be, of course, have several movies. She starred in with uh, Chevalier, but also with uh, Nelson Eddy as her most famous singing partner. So she was quite the big deal in the 30s. But I think by uh, the 40s, her career just kind of petered out because there just wasn't a whole lot of demand for opera singers in movies at that point. What would be, do you think this was her biggest role that she's known for? No, she's known for, I think, a lot more like, I think, Naughty Marietta. um, Oh, the big one with where Nelson Eddy is a Canadian Mountie uh, that was actually adapted, I think, from the stage. And it's a very popular title. And I can't remember it, but. There you go. It's out there. It's out there. You know what? We will be covering Naughty Marietta. Oh, yeah. So we'll probably this will not be our last Jeanette McDonald movie. I am sure. Let's see. Uh, are you looking it up? Yes, I am. So you go ahead. Okay. I, will, I will just scream it out in the middle of one of your sentences. OK, got it. OK, so Queen Louise is a headstrong and independent woman who is sick of her advisors constantly pestering her to find a husband. But her heart is won over by Chevalier's charms. They marry, but Chevalier is incensed to have to play second fiddle to his wife. He proceeds. Rosemary. Rosemary. 
Rose Mary. Yeah, Rose Marie. Okay. All right. Anyways, stop interrupting me. Go on. <laughs> okay. So, um, Renard and Queen Louise, they're getting married. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yes. Except for Renard is incensed about having to uh, play a secondary role to to his wife. It's such a surprise. It's not like, you know, that it's, was what all the advisors were telling him. And that as a count, he should have known that Mary the Queen would lead to this. Uh, but he's very incensed. Yeah, he's he's not happy with having to do nothing, really. He just has to be there. He does. But, you know, it's a terrible blow to his uh, masculine pride. Yeah. And the thing is, is it sounds like he was doing nothing in Paris as well. So one would think that that was a natural uh, situation for him. But he would be wrong, I guess. He was sleeping around, though. And under the Queen's watchful eye, he can't get away with that so much. So although he Mm. still tries. Yeah, so he proceeds to try to put the queen in her place and wins this this struggle uh, by threatening to leave her. So, um, wonderful model for a relationship and how to resolve conflict in yeah. Be childish. Be childish and immediately go for well. I'm going to leave you if you don't do what I want. Ugh. Yeah. Uh. But Queen Louise agrees to be more subservient and give him the title of king instead of <laughs> prince consort. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess let him have a say in orders of state, which he has zero experience in. And I don't think Queen Louise can even grant that power because I think it's a lot of stuff like in England where that that's just not allowed. Crown and government are separate. The politics of Sylvania are a little sus. Let me just say that up front. It's yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so this dark turn is portrayed as a happy ending, of course, <laughs> and it sours an otherwise exuberant farce uh, with lots of falling down and dancing as well. So much dancing. I mean, really impressive choreography. I will give him mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so coupled as a dark turn with the fact that none of the tunes are very memorable. We therefore decided to not nominate it for the prestigious Oscar Award. Yeah, it just, I mean, it didn't leave as bad a taste in my mouth as it would have in a more seriously toned movie. But at the same time, it left a weird aftertaste just because it went so dark in this farce. Mm-hmm. Like, it just didn't, it just didn't. It hit, was unpleasant. Right? Yeah, unpleasant. And... All gender politics aside, it was just unpleasant to have this nice little picture sullied by someone being a jerk. Yeah, just straight up going for the neck. And it's just not not Oscar worthy. Not 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 Oscar material. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. So should we charge into our first uh, actual nominee? Yeah, let's go ahead. And I think it's pretty clear why we didn't nominate the Love Parade. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think Chevalier was good. I think McDonald was good. Um, cinematography was, was pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, it was It was a big show, for it, sure. It was like the first talkie, well, maybe Alibi too, where I feel like it really kind of opened up more. There was a lot more like space used mm. and, and everything, but... It just wasn't that memorable overall. 
No, I mean, I mainly remember the goofy costumes. And, you know, that's a worthy thing to remember in any movie, but not enough to garner one a nomination. Yeah, that's that's I would say that's accurate. Yeah. So let's head over to uh, melodrama land and visit the divorcee. Uh, The gender politics are a lot more equal in Robert Z. Leonard's The Divorcee, starring Norma Shearer and Chester Morris as lovers Jerry and Ted, respectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you could tell by the names uh, that Norma Shearer's character is named Jerry, that this is a take on kind of a modern marriage where they treat each other as equals or that's their goal. The two career driven New Yorkers uh, were led to believe they're both lawyers, right? I believe so. Yeah. It's never really explicitly stated. We're just, but they have nebulous careers out there. Nebulous, well-paying careers. Very, very well-paying careers. These people are very affluent for depression-struck America. Um, And these two lovebirds are a perfect match for each other. But their mutual pride and daring leads to a fatal clash in their relationship. When Shear's character learns Morris has been unfaithful, she follows suit by betraying him with his foppish friend, played by Robert Montgomery, in my favorite performance from the film. Yeah, pretty much. Robert Montgomery is fantastic. I still remember his line of, let's go to all the places, let's do, do all, all the, the things. things. And his delivery is just perfect, because he's mostly drunk, soused throughout. And yeah, Robert Montgomery was is kind of a forgotten gem from the early 30s. We'll see him in another picture this year, and he who's and he's equally good. Yeah, alongside, uh, like alongside alongside Chester, Chester Morris, Morris, who's also very good. So these are really good performances all around this year. Mm-hmm. When Morris is unwilling to give uh, Jerry the benefit of the doubt, when he demanded the same of her for his infidelity, Shearer is fed up with his hypocrisy and divorces him. She proceeds to have wild love affairs that are, in the end, too shallow for her to enjoy. She is nearly seduced by her longtime acquaintance, Paul, who has loved her for years. However, boring, boring Paul. Paul. Conrad Nagel, Nagel, uh, my dad seemed to think it was a hard G, but I don't know. Um, Yeah, this was kind of the end of his career. He was a big old matinee idol in the silent films, but you could see why he, he just did not have a great vocal charisma. Just just lacked magnetism, really. I mean, I mean and yeah. maybe that was on purpose because it, it is a big contrast to between him and Chester Morris. Yeah, you do have to see why she would prefer someone like like Chester Morris to him. And the movie does a good job of that. Um, however, when his wife, who was disfigured by an accident Paul was responsible for in the beginning of the movie, pleads with them both not to ruin her marriage. Sheer can't bear to break up another married couple. Uh, This makes her realize she is still in love with Ted, and the two reunite at a New Year's Eve party in Paris. Although the pacing is a bit slow and stagey in parts, the fact that both characters equally admit their wrongdoing, and Sheer is not punished like McDonald in Love Parade, it softened our outlook on this movie. It's our first nominee of the year. Yeah. While we were in the middle of watching it, we we were expecting some sort of big shame finger pointed at Orishir. Yeah, or, I or was or some nonsense. I was I was gripping myself for that. I was sure it was coming. So I was really satisfied by the conclusion. I thought it was just a very mature and yeah, I mean, these two were screw ups. They, they I mean, Morris, I think, is definitely 
was more of the screw up. But he admits that. Right. He admits it at the end. And it was a real turnaround for this movie. Yeah. You feel like they both like, okay, they're imperfect individuals, but they go well together now that they both have kind of laid their cards on the table. It's like they saw the Notsker nomination slipping from their grasp and and <laughs> dough for it. They're yeah, like, dough for it at the very end there. Dang right. Dang right. So, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The pacing almost made me not want to give it the Notsker because it did just seem very slow in parts. But I felt like it picked itself back up. Yeah, it was, a, it was a decent movie. It was a decent movie. Go watch it. Do it. Do it. All right. Our next picture was Disraeli. It's our first biopic and stars uh, George Arliss in the title role. The plot follows British PM Benjamin Disraeli as he plots to buy the Suez Canal. His first attempts to borrow funds from the Bank of England, but when turned down, he borrows from a Jewish banker who is targeted by Russian spies. Like the divorcee, this film suffers from staginess. Um and it was a staged play, right? Yeah, so that makes or sense. A filmed play, excuse me. Yeah, it. I mean, because I guess it started off as a play, and then it was a silent film in 1921 with George Arliss and his wife, uh, Florence Arliss, um, and then made in the 30s. So, yeah, it kind of just sort of evolved. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was kind of a weak point that it was stagey, but at the same time, it, it felt. I mean, no more so fine. than, you know, other movies we've watched of this era, really. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, the plot does have an engaging feel and is not unlike a modern political thriller. So I think that really helped it out a lot that it did do a do. It did do a good job of building up the tension and yes. you get drawn into it despite it being about imperialism it could have been so so boring you yes. know it could have been very dry and boring and also leave a bad taste because like you said the imperialism but it it isn't yeah arliss i think really he's the one who pulled really it through he pulled it through he carries the movie and not to say the other actors aren't good they're all pretty good mm -hmm. but i think arliss he really just inhabits the role and is just really likable yeah and he won he won the uh i think best so. actor oscar. he did not an oscar oscar actual this. oscar yeah the He's, academy award he the academy award so yeah okay so that's disraeli our second nominee for the year good job good, good job, job disraeli good, job. good show old man good show. setting the uh the precedent for biopics dominating the Oscars for that's for the true rest of, for uh, good history. and bad. Like I love my love myself a good biopic. And when I say good, I don't necessarily mean like good good. I mean it could be cheesy and I'll still love it. But when it takes itself too seriously and plods along, it's the worst. And unfortunately that just seems to be the kind of crap the Oscars love. Yeah, this so, one was fun though. This one was fun. And it, it didn't win, but it was nominated. So Yeah, and it was funny. It was funny. It was very funny. And again, George Arliss, I think, is what really makes the movie. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now let's do a huge U-turn to a very different kind of movie. Yep. Let's go to The Big House. Oh, man. I don't want to go there. Well, you should not. Not have after this movie. You shouldn't have committed manslaughter. Uh, yeah. George W. Hill's The Big House is a movie heavy with themes of social injustice and criminal reform. 
but the compelling performances and straightforward writing keep it from being preachy or sentimental. Robert Montgomery shows up again, as I said, as Kent, and he arrives at prison to serve out his sentence of manslaughter. He, uh, little drunk driving incident, which we would not have seen as out of place in his, with his character in The Divorcee, honestly. Yeah, greater cinematic universe right here. Yeah, see, it's all connected, people. <laughs> he is a sheltered, wealthy boy, convicted for killing someone while drunk driving, and now he has to serve about 10 years. Oof. Yeah. Chester Morris, playing a robber named John, tries to take him under his wing to no avail. When Wallace Beery's violent butch is taken to the dungeon for starting a food fight, Marshall is left with his stolen knife. Frantic, he hides it in Morris's clothes, a discovery that makes the warden revoke Morris's parole. Incensed, Morris escapes, but his plan for revenge on Marshall's sister Anne, played by Layla Hyams, fails when he falls in love with her instead. Aww. He is recaptured and is just in time to witness Butch and the other prisoners' big attempt for a prison break. A massive shootout, misunderstandings, and army tanks ensue. Yeah, it, it, the shootout, it wasn't little. It was not little. It was massive, man. It was, and it was a climax of just like the kind of grotesque mayhem yes. that you saw throughout the entire movie of these men both like completely bored and also just cruelly treated. Yeah. This is one of those things where you, it is almost a catharsis, but like a catharsis where you just know it's not going to end with anything positive for anybody involved. And that's, what's really what's so sick and wrong about the system is that it benefits in the end. Nobody. Right. It just builds up and builds up and builds up and they do such a good job of having it ramp up. Yeah, that to just, this explosion of horror and of violence. horror that you're just like, what are tanks doing here? What's happening? It's a it's a tense, fantastic ride of a movie, and it firmly earned itself its Oscar nomination. I was pretty blown away when I saw this. No pun intended. Right, right. It. Uh, I thought, you know, I thought maybe this could be something that the alibi sh- should have been. Yeah. Uh, and it also had Chester Morris in it yeah. as well. But uh, no, it it kind of surpassed Alibi yes. easily and then went beyond. It's it's a very modern feeling right. prison movie. There's no glamour, no like kind of Hollywood phoniness to it. I mean, you could argue like the end, the ending is a little too pat and sudden after everything. Um, Leila Hyam's character could have been a little better developed. But really, those are just when you look at the movie as a whole, those are just those complaints just kind of disappear. I mean, this was such a huge slap in the face, really, after, you know, the movies that we'd been like, oh, well, you know, they're OK. This is like a whoa. Kind yeah, of it was kind of our first journey into realism. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think oh, it- away from. Especially like coming off the heels of Disraeli, I feel like you that know, was Disraeli a, is very melodramatic and old timey feeling. And also a very flowery, uh, idealized uh, version of those events of imperialism. Right. Whereas this like is just goes again as a, as a phrase I like this year goes for the neck when it comes to like this is wrong. What we're putting these people through is wrong. Yeah. And that's a theme that carries on, I think, to the next pick. Yes, so our final uh, picture and the actual Academy Award winner, Mm -hmm. All Quiet on the Western Front, 
uh, based off of the uh, Eric Maria Remarque's uh, book of the same title. Lewis Milestone's All Quiet on the Western Front is a legendary treatise on the futility of war. And is it? We've had other war movies. I feel like this is the one that really, really didn't pull any punches. No. Um, you know, we, of course, Wings, um, that was, all, you know, from the Allied point of view. And so was Seventh Heaven. Right. And so while it definitely showed grim aspects of the war, there was still like this feeling of victory at the end. Like, well, it was worth it because we won. Right. You don't get that here. No, no. Um we are spared none of the senseless carnage, drudgery, and insanity of World War I. Uh, and we get to see this all from the eyes of a group of German recruits. Hence the lack of victory that we yes, see in Wings. It's, and it's all just pointless. It's absolutely pointless. And I mean, the truth is, it's pointless in a lot of ways for the Allies, too. Only we got to pat ourselves and make ourselves feel better because we did end up winning the thing, technically. But, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we we follow um I guess he's as close as you get as to a primary protagonist right. in the movie. Uh you follow young Paul played by Lou Ayers. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um he actually has the last name of a dear good friend of mine before she was married, so I think I can take a stab in the dark and say it's pronounced Ayers. All right, so Lou Ayers enlists when he is inspired by a professor who fills the students' heads with uh, stories of glory and honor and how great it is to defend the fatherland, et cetera, et cetera. It's just such a prescient movie in mm-hmm. what in what's going to come down the pike in just a couple years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to keep in mind that this is only a couple of years before the rise of the Nazi party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they stormed viewings of this. Because they thought it was uh, painting Germany in a negative light, so it was stuff was was brewing, and they I think they capitalized. Yeah, it's um, although it's not even like like it's not jingoistically anti-German. Either. No, I mean no, because yeah. it, it could be anybody. Right, the because thing. they are. Because I called him, you know, our protagonist, uh, Paul, but. He he really is the protagonist. You are, you know, you do want the characters that you see to survive. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's it is an effective vehicle to kind of put yourself into the role of the people that you're opposing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we are all but flesh and blood. Mm hmm. So. Instead of glory and honor, Paul and his friends find nothing but death and bombardment and bombardment and bombardment and bombardment. And just when you think it's done, a little more bombardment. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, A mere plot summary is kind of irrelevant. Mm. Uh, The movie does not have that much of a plot so much as like a series of vignettes of a typical soldier at war. So... There isn't like a long thread or there are like short snippets of a story here and there. Yeah, It's like it's almost like a a collection of short stories, really, with like the same Mm -hmm. characters, kind of. Right. Um, right. And I think it's an interesting choice on the filmmaker's part 
like there are characters like um, Louis Volheim's uh, Kaczynski, uh, Slim Hayward's character Chieden, who who have kind of personalities. You know what they're about. But for like the younger characters like Paul, you really don't know too much about them as individuals, like what makes them tick. No, they're almost faceless. Yeah, which really does put you directly in their shoes. I mentioned when we reviewed it that it's kind of what makes something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre so terrifying is that you don't really get to know the kids before all the horror starts. You just just feel like you're them. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so terrifying. Like, I feel like this is a horror movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely that feel to it. Severed hands clutching a barbed fence. That's in this movie, folks. Yeah, that's really uh, burned its way into into your mind. It really has, because I just was not expecting it from a 1930 movie. I just, I mean, I love it. That sounds wrong, but it just, it does. You, you love that they, that they did that. I they love that they went that. there, that they did it, that they just did not spare us. Yeah, so, yeah, they're, but, you know, for the most part, it's, uh, cramped waiting in dugouts, uh, long periods of starvation with uh, sometimes there's the brief interlude of usurping a bunch of food from a uh, <laughs> from a finicky uh, army chef. Yep. There is a brief interlude of love and lust with some French villagers. There are amputations, troubled leaves and more more yeah nothing good happens nothing good happens it's grim the best thing that happens i think would be kind of the relationships that get built up amongst the men yes only that and sadly too for the most part yeah but hey it was it was nice while it lasted well it's nice to see that even in the most miserable of human conditions some friendship and camaraderie can keep you sane yeah, and that's pretty much what what keeps what keeps the movie real and sympathetic and you still like these characters instead of just feeling like it's just an empty horror show. Yeah. Um you care about them because they care about each other. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Um and let's see. At the end, any hope is crushed like a butterfly caught in trench warfare. It's um, it's a devastatingly effective movie, mm-hmm. and I think uh, well-deserved its Academy Award win. Yeah, yeah, this movie just definitely was a punch in the gut. And I didn't really, you know, I'd always heard of All Quiet on the Western Front, but I never really knew... I knew it was about World War One, but for some reason, I'd always thought it was from an American point of view. And so I figured it would be kind of patriotic and maybe a little sappy. Mm-hmm. And it was the opposite of that. So I just came in totally unprepared. And uh, it was very much an experience. Yeah, it was the grim realism of a modern movie like Saving Private Ryan without it having a vaguely... Um, Vaguely like, you know, pro USA, hooray thing to like fall back on. And what I also appreciate is that in a movie like Saving Private Ryan, you always have like the uh, Tom Hanks character who has a lot of machismo, a lot of, uh, you know, his kind of uh, cool head and macho-ness keeps him afloat. And we maybe get that a little with Kaczynski, 
mm-hmm. but that's kind of he's he's more he's far less an impressive figure than like Tom Hanks. He's way more kind of down and dirty. Yeah, he's not like a he's he's heroic out of just like sheer acceptance of how horrible everything is. And instead of like big macho posturing um, that's, you know, validated, any macho posturing is basically kind of belittled. And what the men end up doing is just shrieking and going insane as and that's what war is. It is not some like macho show. It is we basically become children again because what else are we you going to do when faced with that? You just like fall on your knees and pray you don't get killed. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely an effective movie. From love parade to this, you know. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was one thing that I was uh, I wanted to bring up when we got to the end here um, with all quiet on the Western Front in the big house. When we got to the end here, we basically just watched these in reverse alphabetical order with the. Um, oh, yeah. With the <laughs> um, actual winner at the end, which is what we're trying to do for every year. Yeah. But it happened to just be the reverse alphabetical That's order. funny. Oh, my gosh. I didn't and realize. And to me, the movies got better as we went along. And it's also funny that we went from love parade at the start of our viewing Mm -hmm. which is about a comically faux militaristic fake european nation of some of some kind to to all quiet on the western front yeah and you can kind of tell like how i can see the challenge if i were in the academy of how do you even start to compare some of these? Oh my God. It's so, I mean, and that the tension is just ramped with each movie. Um, you know, I think it's a little easier for the critics this time around because it's not like, you know, uh, Chicago, uh, versus saving private Ryan kind of thing, totally different years, but that kind of thing where, it's like, well, you know, they're different genres, but about on the same level of quality. I mean, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's clear what the superior movie is this year. <laughs> like, but it's interesting. Yeah. It's a it was a very interesting examination of the different types of uh, movies that I think were kind of more available and able to do now that there was sound. We kind of get a good spectrum yeah. of them because we have Disraeli and Love Parade on the very melodramatic sort of side. You have the divorcee kind of in the middle, mm-hmm. and then you have the big house and all quiet on the Western Front on the the opposite of melodrama. Yeah, opposite. And, you know, something like the divorcee, you know, has people like suffering emotionally, but like in gorgeous gowns, nice tuxes <laughs> aboard yachts and whatnot that all grammar, grammar, glamour is just scraped away for a big house at all quiet on the Western front. And I, so I think we were on agreement on the two big movies that were kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Those, those were my two big ones was, I mean, maybe I think I said this during Disraeli's episode. It's like, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, I'm not a huge fan of melodrama. I do think that Disraeli did a really good job of being a melodrama. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially because, you know, 
there's like some hand wringing or whatever, but it's kind of done with like with, with the wink and a nudge, mm-hmm. and uh, and still keeps its like eye on the prize, which sadly in this case is a Suez Canal, but keeps the like the plot firmly in mind and not just succumbing to the the emotional upheaval of it all. Yeah. So now our big question is who's going to win it? Who's going to win mm-hmm. this season's Notsker and Movie Award podcast movie award for movies? You know, and I mean... It's going to be between the big house, house and all quiet. Quiet on Western Front. Yeah, yeah. So uh, should we write out our our answers? Oh, gosh. I really don't want to. I know. What I if know. the other movie feels bad? Yeah, exactly. I don't want to hurt its feelings. All right, you write yours and I'll write mine because I forgot to bring a pencil. All right. Don't cheat. Don't look. I looked. I saw everything. I did not. Oh, man. I really, really, really had a hard time with this one. Me too. Which is different from the last couple of times. Last we did couple this. of times where there was a clear like, okay, this sucks the least. Um, <laughs> The last time, at least the first year, first year, we had some pretty good choices. We had some very good contenders and, um, you know, and I could have probably easily gone for like one or the other, but I was just so passionately attached to the characters in Seventh Heaven. But anyways, should we go for the big reveal? All right. Here, let me count them up. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to mix them up so we don't know whose is whose. Whose is whose. This is just art. The technical process of this is just mind blowing. I won't bore you all with the details. Yeah, it's it's done double blind. Okay. Yeah. We uh, we write them down on slips of paper, which are then handed off to our uh, poll authorities, mm-hmm. and then they uh, tally up the votes. It's cross checked by by both parties, and then we get them back and count them up. That's exactly how it works. Exactly. Um, Mission Control has to sign off too. Yeah, that too. We call yeah. it Houston. Yep. So, according to Come Back a Star, a movie award podcast. Oh my God, I'm nervous. We have one vote for All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. Piece of carrots, piece of carrots. And a second vote for All Quiet on the Western Front. <gasps> so, good job. Good job. Super grim movie. Super, super grim movie. And I mean, it was tough between that and Big House, but I think there was just something a bit more epic about All Quiet on the Western Front, which can be, you know, the Academy probably focuses too much on epic when epic doesn't always equate equal like quality. Uh, But I think just it has just this horrible symmetry to it. And an artistry that is very touching. I thought, yeah, just, it doesn't give you a foothold. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It doesn't give you anything to hold on to. It felt dangerous. Yeah. You know, and I think it probably is why maybe more than any other movie, although I have no evidence for this, why the host, the Hays Co decided to swoop in because, you know, on top of the, you know, implied sex and the gruesome violence, you know, it, it, it was 
trying to say political things that might not uh, sit well with some more conservative types. And uh, right. And so was and so was the big house. So was the big house. I mean, again, that's why it was so close, because the big house had the love story in the middle, which actually was that was actually one of the things, one of the arguments that I kept going back and forth. And it's like, well, the big house does have some you have some respite in the middle there. Yeah, that's true. But at the end, it's kind of like that pet ending wasn't satisfying. Mm-mm. I as, mean, it, it was on a shallow level because I wanted those characters to be yeah, happy. Exactly. Yeah. But you're at, at the same time, you're kind of like, eh, I guess it's a bit of a cheat. And well, the ending isn't as, you know, enjoyable in All Quiet on the Western Front. It is. You're happy that it's over. You're happy that it's over, which is sounds weird as a compliment, but but yeah, I have to agree. It just it feels right. It feels like, well, and so it goes, as Mr. Vonnegut would say. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, the 2930 year roundup. Uh, we agree with the Academy this year. Yeah. Just did, like yeah. last year. Yes, we did, too. With Broadway yeah. Melody. Okay. Uh, we deferred our first year. Uh, Wings won the Academy that year. Right, we, we, right. we gave Seventh Heaven the edge. But but yeah, I mean, so. I yeah. The Academy, you're two for three. You're t- yeah, you're two for three. You know, it's not bad. No, no. I mean, I feel like we'll have some like really clear cut cases like this in uh, some years. Uh, probably as again, you know, they're still working on trying to incorporate sound in a good way. So we're probably still going to see a few awkward clunkers and some that are going to stand out like this for at least yeah. a couple more years. But they they definitely got the sound issue worked out. What worked out. For sure. Both in All Quiet and in Big House uh, with just the gunfire in both movies. Just relentless. You really see why people go mad in those situations. Oh, yeah. Because it's not even like the standard Hollywood gun noise that you hear now. No, no. Far more terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, everyone. Uh, You can find us on the social media. Do it. On Twitter at ComebackAStar. And you can give us an email at comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook page, which has something like three followers. Yeah, three is better than none. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. I'm not even counting us. Hey, oh my gosh. I'm not even sure if you're following it. I am. And I am now following the Twitter too. I I don't go on Twitter a lot. So it it took me a while. I'm not a very good self-promoter. It's probably probably best for your sanity. Honestly, at this point, yeah, I'm probably living a little too much in podcast la la land. But we all got to keep saying somehow, right? Yeah, somehow. Somehow. We'll make it through. Before we reach that butterfly. Yeah, a couple of weeks is the U.S. election for 2020, just in case people are wondering yeah. why. Uh, uh, we'll see what happens. I want it to come and go. La, la. Indeed. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, let's see. Curtains down. Projector off. Signing off. Yeah. See you later. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.